We are continuing on our second week in our, our new series here in August um, in Christ and Controversy. So if you thought that these topics were going to be easy, uh, there should be some sort of hint in the title of the sermon series of Christ and Controversy. And so all of these topics, or at least the next few, came from you all. So if you don't like um, some of these topics, um, you only have yourselves to blame. Um, so today we are going to talk about a very controversial topic, and that is hell. Um, hell is not something that's seeker sensitive. It's not something that we want to think about a whole lot. And yet it is something that Jesus spoke about more than anybody else in the New Testament. It is one of his, I wouldn't say favorite topics, but it is one of his most frequent topics that he talked about and that he brought before the people. And so if we're going to follow Jesus in all of life, which is that's part of our mission statement is inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life, then all of life has to be submitted to what he says and what he prioritizes and what he has to say about topics like hell. Now again, uh, pastors over the years have avoided and do, as do I many days, uh, avoid difficult topics. So I'm really grateful that you have emailed us on these difficult topics like hell, uh, predestination I think will be next week, and then after that we'll see what the Lord has prepared. Um, I almost have a, a really nerdy theological joke, but I'm going to keep it inside. Um, nonetheless... Uh, but pastors have avoided difficult concepts, I think, for the sake of they don't want to offend people. Um, and that's part of the reason why topics like this are avoided. The other reason why topics like this are avoided is because the stage does not provide the environment for the, for the amount of nuance that you need. And you do need a lot of nuance when you're talking about controversial topics. And so I'll do my best to provide some nuance and at the same time avoid a whole lot of it, for this, really for the sake of time, but the other reason why we uh, and I'm putting myself in the topic uh, or in the category of people that avoid difficult uh, topics like today, um, the other reason why we avoid them isn't just because of lack of nuance or because it's offensive, but especially now we are in a therapeutic culture. Uh, a therapeutic culture will say, if it makes me feel bad, it must then be bad. Um, I will tell you that if, if that's the air that you are breathing, you're going to avoid most of the things that Jesus talks about, particularly the road to maturity. Like you can't mature unless you realize, dang, I'm wrong. Like one of the most impactful sermons that you all heard and I heard over the summer was from Jason Bollinger when he said, what I see in churches today is a lack of conviction, that where I am, there's a gap between where God wants me. Did you guys remember this? You guys tuned in or maybe you were here for this? I remember it. And I would say that that is absolutely the road to maturity. So if we're going to be therapeutic and therefore avoid difficult things, we're never going to mature. We're never going to follow Jesus in all of life. But today we have the privilege to not avoid these things but to dig into them and to understand what Jesus was trying to and what he so eloquently uh, told his people. Hell is definitely not touchy-feely. It is definitely not seeker-sensitive, but it is a topic which Jesus again mentioned more than any other person in the Bible. And what I want you to hear in this um, is one of the reasons why we kind of um, recoil at the thought of hell. We, we usually try to not think about it, right? I do. Um, but the reason why we recoil at the thought of it is because a lot of times it's been weaponized. Hell has been something that people brought up to convince you that Jesus is better than hell. Like you don't need a lot of convincing that Jesus is better than hell, that heaven is better than hell. We can see these typical uh, pictures of, of heaven and paradise juxtaposed with hell and fire and go, yeah, I don't want hell and fire. I'd rather just have hell and paradise. 
But the problem is we don't really emphasize the road. We just emphasize, oh, well, you just got to choose. And so we weaponize it to go, look, you should be afraid of this and you should want this. And, and I would say that's such an incomplete picture of what God did while he was here in Jesus. Instead, what he did was that when he approached lost people, he invited them into the kingdom. When he approached lost people, he didn't threaten them with hell. He said, hey, sin no more and come and, and, and live in the kingdom. You, woman at the well, yeah, yeah. All the husbands that you've had and the guy you're living with now, he doesn't say to her, now, if you keep living like that, you're going to go to hell. He says, hey, like, I'm, if you drink of me, if you have some of this water, you'll never thirst again after another man. What a beautiful picture. He's always inviting them into something deeper and, and satisfying them with something they didn't even know they needed. But to the believer, to the one who attends the synagogue and the temple, to the one who thinks they know it all or they think they know it all, He's pretty rough with them, is he not? That's us, by the way. If we're looking at the scriptures and we go, oh, am I the woman at the well or am I the Pharisee? More likely the Pharisee. And he will warn us. He will warn the Pharisee pretty harshly and talk pretty harshly uh, to them about the dangers of hell. And so it's to the one who would, who would be faithful to God that he warns them of the dangers of hell and those who are far off that he invites them into heaven. So let us wep not weaponize this as we leave here. Let us not think that, oh, there it is, another fire and brimstone sermon. You've actually never heard one from here. So another probably wouldn't be accurate, but we probably should talk about it more because Jesus mentioned it quite a bit. So the emails that I received of hell really weren't asking for clarification on whether or not it was a real place. Um, instead, it was, it was really this. Like this was the heart of most of the emails that I got about hell, which by the way was a surprise to me. It was not on the list of things that I thought we would, we would, we would, we would think about, but it came in. It was definitely the, one of the most popular. And so really it's about this. Like how do we deal with a God who is merciful, loving, and gracious, who then judges people into an eternal conscious torment? How do we deal with that God? How do we deal with thinking about a God who is love? and yet who is also holy. Why does he punish people for all of eternity? And this is, I think, a heart of it. Why does he punish people for all of eternity for only one lifetime's worth of sin? You see how they can see how it's not just for him to do that. They only had one lifetime worth of sin, 80 or 50 or 100 years. Why then for all of eternity? What, what, that seems to be difficult to get our minds around. Or perhaps their concept of hell it's just difficult to swallow because you love the person. They're just good, genuine people. But they don't know Jesus. Surely God will overlook something and see the goodness that's in their heart. I mean, I just really love them, but they're Muslim. I really love them, but they're Buddhist. I really love them, but they, they ascribe to something different. And so that's also very difficult, right? These are the challenges that we have to overcome when we're thinking about a topic like hell. But I'll just say this, if the idea of hell doesn't wreck us about some of our loved ones, like it's appropriate for us to think, I just love that person. I wish God would make an exception somehow, or perhaps he'll do something on their deathbed. I, I just really love that person. Maybe he'll do something. Maybe he'll overlook the sin of disbelief. I think it's natural for us to have those thoughts. If, if we're not thinking through those types of things, if it doesn't wreck us, this reality of hell, 
And something's off within our hearts. Something's off in how we are viewing the people that are around us. That this doesn't wreck us because they are underneath the final irreversible judgment of God. And that should shake us, cause us to lament, cause us to go to God in prayer. Lord, please, I would, I mean, as Paul says in Romans 9, I would give up my right to eternity if my brothers would just believe. It should be a part of our prayer life. If it be possible for you to reject me, O God, so that they may come into the kingdom, let it be so. Knowing full well theologically it's not possible. But that's our heart, our desire. It's how much we want people to come to faith. This whole idea of eternal torment should wreck us. And the reason why is because of Jesus' teaching on hell are so clear. I'm not going to go through these scriptures, but I want you to just hear some of the words that he, talk, he uses when thinking about hell and what he articulated through his years of ministry. Outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. If you don't know what gnashing of teeth is, it's when you're in pain or you break an arm or you blow out an ACL or an Achilles and you go, mm. it's that deep pain that only comes out in groaning. Torment, punishment, unquenchable fire, cut into pieces, where worm doesn't die, from which there is no return, and eternal punishment, which is what we read today. I would say this, believer, as those who have escaped such a fate by grace alone, this should cause no rejoicing except that God in his perfect will saw it fit to spare us by revealing to us his goodness and his true character. It's the only reason why you believe is because he graciously showed you that. So let's get to the unpacking of the difficulties, shall we? And I think probably the first difficulty that's underneath all of these emails is I don't know if I'm okay with Jesus the judge. So I'll tell you today, I don't have any points that are going to be put on the screen. I'm just going to put a lot of scripture up. It'll be a little bit different. If you don't have like a, a notepad, we've provided journals. If you want to write notes, you can do that. If you want to put it in your notes on your phone, you can do that too. I'll trust that you're not on Instagram as I see you. Wink, wink. But truly, I don't have a lot of points. I just have a lot of scripture today because I want us to see this comes from God's authoritative word, and I'll put these on the screen as we go. But the first thing that we have to unpack that's very difficult is that Jesus is the judge. And if we, if we read back through some of the scripture we just read, um, this is what we would see. With all the talk about what sheep are in this country and what goats are in this country, like Simone Biles is the goat. Tom Brady is the goat. You ever notice that we've inversed this whole thing? And you who, who believe the media, well, you're just sheep. You notice how we've reversed this whole idea of sheep and goats, well, let's just Jesus, let, let him set the record straight. He is the judge on sheep and goats. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne from, whence, from where he will judge the living and the dead, the Bible says. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations, everyone. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This picture is of Jesus himself being the judge. 
to keep reading down in verse 41. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If you keep going down to verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. During the announcement time, I told you that it was last year at this time that we were in Matthew 25. So I'm, I, my purpose today is to not unpack those that he's talking about, about sheep and goats. I did that last year. If you want to go back and look at our, our, our messages on eternity, you can go back and see what we said or what I said about sheep and goats. The main point today I want you to hear and see is that these are Jesus's words. And they're articulating for us that he is indeed going to judge everyone. And he'll put them into two categories. There's no hybrid sheep-goat. Goat-sheep. There's no hybrid. Okay? There's either sheep, believers, destined for eternal life, or goats, non-believers, destined for eternal punishment, according to Jesus according to what he has to say from his throne. And so the idea of a gentle, merciful Jesus as the one who will separate goats and sheep and the promise of eternal life or eternal punishment can be a tough pill to swallow. But if we want to worship a full picture of Jesus, both, uh, both must be accepted, that he is gentle and he is judge. I don't know about your vacations, but this is a common theme about my vacations, particularly when we were in California uh, this summer. And we were there for 12 days, and it was beautiful, and it was good, and the weather was amazing, especially the last little bit as we were on the beach. And it was like 50 at night and like 75 during the day. Oh, man. And my wife would just kind of be like, I just want to live here. And I go, yeah, but we can't afford it. <laughs> and then there was a time where I filled up at a gas station um, in, a, in a town, and then I was like, are you kidding me right now? This is what? Um, excuse me? Because for what? excuse me, $4.72 for gas. And then, this is California, they wanted to charge me 30 cents to use my debit card. And then the Texas in me came out. (laughs) 30 cents out of your mind. 30 cents is not a big deal. It was the injustice. (laughs) They're going to charge me to pay you. What is that? Just let me give you my money. I already paying too much. But I kept thinking to myself, and this is a common theme, it's just not about California. It's also like, I wonder, we go to like Fredericksburg, or we'll go to wherever. Like we went to a really cool farmer's market at a barn in the town that we were in in California. And we just constantly think to ourselves, why can't this be done in Richmond? Why can't Galveston not smell like that and it smell like this? Right? Why can't they figure this out? It's only been there for all of eternity. Let's just make it happen. Get somebody in there. Get the seaweed off the beach. Why can't we have the beauty without the pain? Why can't we have Houston without the heat? Why can't we have a back patio without mosquitoes? We want the good without the bad. We want gentle Jesus without Jesus' judge. But we must have both. And of course, we're in August. We're in Houston in August. We're, we've, we've come to accept both in some levels. So let us do that also with our King and with our God, whom is beckoning us to follow him, even in the parts that we don't prefer, especially the parts that we don't prefer, even in the parts that we don't quite understand. You see, 
a God without judgment, love without holiness, heaven without hell, brings us to a place where we are now fashioning a God and a religion all to our own. And it is not the traditional, still, rock-solid view of our God. Our culture will try and convince us this is archaic and outdated, outdated, but the longer that we live, the truer it becomes if we just look, if we just believe. So these three main views of hell, that's the first difficulty we have to deal with is Jesus is the judge. But let's just talk about this place that Jesus spent so much of his ministry warning believers about and really just kind of making sure that we're faithful to him so that we don't go there. There's three main views of hell that I want to get to. But before we get to that, when he talks about hell, the word that he uses more often than not is the word Gehenna. Gehenna in the Greek. Um, and so in the Greek, if you, were, um, if you were there and you were listening to him and, and Jesus would say, he's going to send you out into hell or to Gehenna, your mind, if you were a Jewish first century person, your mind would have gone, that's the valley of Hymnon or Himon. Hinnom? I can't ever say it. It's a valley right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it's the trash heap. It's the dump. It's where they set the trash on fire. It's no wonder then that Jesus uses language like the fire never runs out and the worm never dies because that's what happens in a city dump. The maggots just have free reign and the fire, they would burn their trash and the fire never goes out because there's ne- an, an, an endless supply of trash. So when he's saying hell, they all think that the, the city dump outside the city walls. It's outside the city. It's not a place you want to go to. Somebody else probably takes your trash to that place so that you don't have to face the reality of this huge fire, worm-infested place. When he's using language, they have a literal place that they're referring to. But I want you to think about that when we think about these three view, main three views of hell, one of which I will tell you right off the bat is not orthodox, two of which, well, we'll get there. The first one is this. Christian universalism. This was recently made, be made, uh, was made popular by Rob Bell uh, in his book called Love Wins. Don't go buy it, I'll tell you. It's not worth it. I've bought it and I gave him my money and then I think threw it away or gave it away nonetheless. So he made a, 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 a killing off of this idea that um, ultimately, just like church father Origen, which was convicted as a heretic, but Origen allegorized the scripture in such a way to say that, you know, love wins. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says love never ends. So God never give up on you. Even in your death, he will never give up on you. He will win you over even after death. And so they're using the Bible to somehow, uh, uh, you know, cast upon Jesus part of his character that was never there. And they'll use 1 Corinthians 13. They'll also use Romans 5, which I'm going to bring up now. Andy, can you help me out, brother? Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that's Adam, all people are condemned. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people. So then everyone is going to be saved. They're using the Bible, and now I am reminded of my seminary professor, Dr. Bingham, where he would go, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everyone's using the Bible. You didn't laugh like I did many times. That's okay. I forgive you. 
But nonetheless, he would say that over and over and over again. It is etched into my mind because, look, here's the deal. Everyone does use the Bible to justify what they think about God. This isn't coming out of thin air. But they're not seeing the broader context of Romans 5, which talks about the only way that we're saved is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Not that all people would be saved, but that all people would have the opportunity to be saved. Christian universalism is heresy. It is not within the realm of Christian thought. So if you're on your way to Mercury Meadows and you see a Unitarian uh, church, not that there's one over there, there's definitely one over there. But if you go by there, that's not the closest church to you who live in Mercury Meadows. That's a trap. Okay? We need to hear that so that we can separate, as Jesus is trying to help us see, sheep and goats. So that's Christian universalism. Now, the next two are probably really where we're struggling. The first one is annihilationism. Now, many people would say over time that this is an unorthodox view of hell. And I would say, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. And let me just explain to you what annihilationism is. That God, in the end, will judge those who have rejected the Son, and He punishes them for their sin until their soul dies or ceases to exist. So there's an end to their suffering. He pays them back for their sin until their soul dies. That's a, or, it, or it becomes annihilated. Okay, that's annihilationism. And they would use the Bible as well. Or those that would, uh, in this room, that perhaps uh, propose this idea. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the both soul and body in Gehenna. Jesus referring to himself there as someone who can destroy, can end, can annihilate those who are in hell. That is, I think, within the orthodox view of hell. Many people would disagree with even my judgment that that's within the view of orthodox Christianity. But instead, I would say this third one is where we land as a church. And we land here as a church because all of, basically most of, uh, of Christian tradition from the very beginning land on a literal view of hell, and that is eternal conscious torment. The traditional view of hell where God will judge those who have rejected his son and punish them for eternity. You get this from the scriptures that we even just read, right? I'll read them a third time today. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, verse 41 in, 20, in Matthew 25, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away, in verse 46, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If we want to say that that our life is eternal and lasts for forever, then we also then have to wonder why Jesus is using the same exact word to describe death, that it also would last forever. And those two things are right next to each other of eternal life and eternal death, eternal punishment. Not just death, but punishment. It's going to last for all of eternity. And you might say to yourself, well, I mean, are you sure about that? Yes, because in Revelation 20, verses 10 and in verse 15, this is what he talks about. He says, the devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever 
and ever. And you think to yourself, well, that's the devil and the false prophet. They're going to be tormented day and night. Well, if we keep reading in verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire along with the devil and the false prophet, where eternal punishment forever and ever will happen. Now, that is much worse than an annihilationist view. Annihilationist view is that at some point their torment will end and God will be merciful. But an eternal conscious torment is far worse. Far, far worse. Forever and ever, the Bible would say. I'll tell you where we stand on this. We stand with great humility, with a traditional view of eternal conscious torment. With great humility. Because I hope that when we get to see King Jesus, that he corrects us and goes, no, no, there's actually, we're going to put an end in my mercy. I hope that that's the case. Although I have to stand with what I believe to be Scripture, and I accept there to be Scripture to have far more implications here to talk about eternal conscious torment. So I stand there theologically. My heart so wants it to be something different. Because my loved ones will be there. Your loved ones, some of your loved ones could be there. And so we have to take that in and go, Lord, I, I, I don't want that to be the case, but I accept it. I accept it until we are corrected, perhaps in all of eternity. Because after all, we're predicting the future here based on just a few pages in all of history. So let us stand in humility, whatever we think about the end of time. Let us just be humble enough to go, you know what? I think, but Jesus could show me I'm wrong one day. And that's okay. But not about the fact that Jesus will judge. There will be sheep and goats. Let us stand firm on that very clear reality that he will do what is right. Now as we think about that, I don't know where you're at. Think about eternal conscious torment. We think about all these different ideas. We think about like, am I a sheep or a goat? Is my daughter, is my son is my neighbor, is my brother, sister, dad, mother. I think that's where our minds are going. We have to wrestle with some really hard difficulties when we start thinking about the reality of what hell is. Really difficult things. But I'll tell you one of the hardest things that I think it's, uh, that we have to wrestle with. And I'm putting these before us because I think these are the things that I know they're communicated through email. And if a few of us are communicating that way, it's probably in us one way or another. I think the most difficult thing for us to wrestle through is God there. Is God there? And I'll put two scriptures before you. And you might think to yourself, well, see there, it's a contradiction. But let's reconcile them. I think there's a reconciliation that can be had. 2 Corinthians 1.9 would say this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Non-believers, those that are leading others astray. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Note the language. That could be an annihilationist view. Or it could be punishment. It's all in the translation. So it could be there forever. Away, though, from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His might. So God just must not be there. Until we get to Revelation 14, 10. Again, he talks about eternity. And he says this. And he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur 
in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So here's where, how we reconcile these things. They see you there. And this is where, to me, hmm, the depth and the difficulty of hell becomes all that more real. Is that God is there, but He's inaccessible. God is there, but He is no longer merciful, but judge. God is there, and you probably, we probably, if we're not sheep going to eternal life, if we're goats going to eternal death and punishment, are, are, are calling out for mercy, He's not answering. This is where we, we go and we start to see the connections throughout all of the Scripture that He's there, but He's turned His back on us. But His face is not set before us. His countenance, as the ironic blessing says in Numbers 6, that His countenance and His disposition would be towards us and for us. And that's a blessing from God. For those there, he, He's turned away. This should, this should, should hit us in ways that we don't, we're not comfortable with like you showed up today and you're like it's august 8th man headed back into church for the first time in a long time and this is what i get hit with man yeah welcome in we love you you know jesus loves you more than we do and he put all these things down for your encouragement so we would know when you want to know when you want to know these things when you want to believe these things so you might be thinking to yourself well man like is that fair? Is that fair that, that, that like really good, solid people in my workplace that produce a lot and are not a headache to me, that they show up on time and they leave late and they put their projects in on time, those people that I love are going to be goats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be. Is this fair? Well, when we ask that question, we have to ask ourselves, like, aren't we, aren't we really bringing into question what we believe about the character of God when we say, is this fair? Are we really kind of mentioning, when we mention Jesus as the judge, and we did so earlier, uh, we're thinking, like, what kind of judgment, Jesus, are you going to judge people with? And is it going to be fair? How much are, and I would just ask us this, like, how much are we going to rely on our, our, our very limited view of people? to then go back and maybe accuse Jesus of not being fair. We see these people 8, 10, 12 hours a day. We don't know what's in their heart. We don't know what's in their motives. But Jesus knows exactly what's in our hearts. Psalm 139, it's not going to come up on your screen, but he says he knows what's in our hearts. He judges perfectly our motives. 1 Corinthians 4 says he is absolutely good. He is absolute light. And in whom there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5 would say. And he, friends, will do what is right. 100% of the time. According to how he defines what is right not according to what we define. So this is where Isaiah says, my ways are higher than your ways. I understand and I have infinite wisdom, God would say to us. I know exactly how to do this, when to do this, what's right and what's wrong, hell or heaven. I know. And we ask, like, is hell fair? Is this understanding of hell fair? Is heaven fair? Did you deserve to be judged, to be a sheep? 
I didn't. That's the most unfair proposition in this whole thing, that we get what we don't deserve if we get heaven. And yet hell is just a repayment for the thing that we've earned. The wages of sin is death. What we've earned, wages, through our sin, which everyone has, is death. You know, we live in the land of the home and the free. Home of the free, right? And yet we have more people incarcerated in jails than the entire rest of the world. Did you know that? 2.2 million people sat in jail last year. More than China, more than more populous uh, nations, China or India or whomever. We have more people in jail in this country than anywhere else in the world. And you know what? We go to sleep at night resting by that fact. Do you know why we rest in that fact? For the most part, there are injustices along the way. I don't want to discount those. You know why we're okay with that? Because when murderers go to jail, that's good. That's, that's justice. When someone who has the opportunity to do harm to our family can no longer do harm to our family, we should rejoice in the fact that that's a picture of sheeps and, sheeps, sheep and goats at the end of time. And as obvious as a murder is, and therefore they get put in jail for the rest of their life, or in our state, might face the death penalty, as, as obvious as that is, when there's no longer a person around in someone's family because someone else has taken their life, that's an obvious reality, and they deserve obvious punishment, how much more the God of the universe sees those very obviously who deserve hell and who will be married in heaven. We live in that reality every day and there are injustices and yet there will never be an injustice with Jesus. So I end with this. How seriously should we take hell? Well, judging by how thick it is in here and how difficult it is for us all to hear this, um, I would just say, like, how much more difficult was it for God? And is it for God? How serious does he take the threat of hell in our lives? How serious does he take it? And we look no further than the beautiful reality of God sending his perfect and one and only son to die for those that deserved hell. How serious does he take it? He died to make sure we don't go there. He died to make sure that our, our neighbors and the networks and the nations, we don't just throw that on on a tagline at the end of a, of a gathering once a week. He, he, he came to rescue us from that reality. How serious does he take it? And, and as much seriousness as we can fathom, that he would send his perfect son, and that he would not just send his perfect son, Son, but that he knew, John 1 says, he knew what was in our hearts and he did not entrust himself to us because he knew we were going to murder him. He knew it. He knew the end before it ever started. He knew that our sin would put him there. And if we were there that day, we'd either be Judas, Peter, or a Roman soldier or someone else that's cowardly enough to not even think about what's going on. We wouldn't be Jesus. We wouldn't be, you know, Mary or John at the foot of the cross wondering what's happen, happening. We'd be someone else. That's who we were. That's why we need to be reminded of, of hell. 
Because it's a reality. It's one that Jesus faced so you don't have to. It's one he preached about, wrote down for us, preserved for us for like this is what a beautiful reality that he's preserved a perfect understanding of who he wants us to understand. So that we could understand this and see it. And the Holy Spirit then, he knew we wouldn't get it. Then the Holy Spirit comes and he, he helps you understand this stuff. you got a helper. Like that's how, how beautiful is this? How thorough is God's thought for you that we don't go to hell? That he empowers you to believe this stuff, to obey him in all of life, and then to, not, to, like, to worship? How serious does he take it? He's done everything so you wouldn't have to taste it. He's in everything. So we wouldn't have to taste the wine of God's wrath in Revelation 14. Everything. He says this in John 3, and I'll read this. It's important for us to understand for those who believe and those who don't believe. John 3, 16 through 19, this is how it all comes down. We love this first part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. They shouldn't perish. We would just believe, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now check this out, y'all. This is where we usually stop reading. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But the people love the darkness. Rather than the lights, the light. Because their works are evil. We think to ourselves, man, Jesus is so cruel. He's judging people. No, 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 no. We're already condemned. He didn't come in to send us to hell. He came to invite us into the kingdom. We were already headed there. Already condemned because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our wandering, because of the sinful nature that Adam passed down to all of his descendants through Eve, which is us. So he came to invite us. He came to bring us out of the darkness. And look at what John the Baptist, his cousin, says in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is then handed to him or remains. It's already on us. So if we are not believers in this room, heed the words of Jesus. You remain condemned. We don't need to go back through what, what that means. But if you've not surrendered yourself to Jesus, and I'm not talking about a pinky toe into the, into the pool of grace. I'm talking about, like, let's just jump into this baby. All in, immersed, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If, we, if that has not happened for you, it's time. And I'm not talking about just water baptism, although that's time. I'm talking about, like, no more dipping our toes into the waters of grace and then living like we want to live. Eternity is on the line. Eternity is on the line. God sent his perfect, absolutely holy son into a world which was broken, flawed, and deceived, where he knew the thoughts of men, didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was going to happen, and he did so with full knowledge. And it is for this reason that the Father sent the Son to become human, 
to live a sinless life, which I would imagine took more power to live sinlessly than Bruce Banner holding in the Hulk. It would have took a lot of power to just live sinlessly. Could you imagine as a young adolescent what that took took for Jesus? And yet he suffered at the hands of his own creation, betrayed by his one of his best friends, deserted by the rest of his buddies, constantly misunderstood, constantly being tried to be killed, pushed out of every synagogue he ever taught in. At every turn he was doubted, ridiculed, misunderstood, chased out of town, insulted, spat upon, beard plucked out, beat senselessly, deserted by all those whom he loved and invested in. How seriously did God take hell? Did everything that he could possibly do for you to believe. And one thing that my prayer was today was that to be clear, and I think God has provided that. The other thing that I'm asking the Lord to do is to convict. Convict those in this room or online or whomever might listen to this later. And maybe, maybe you, you've deceived yourself into thinking you're a believer when you may not be. And I just ask that you repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. He doesn't want you going someplace. He doesn't want you going to hell. He came to capture you, to woo you, to invite you, to call you by name. You come on. Come sit down at my table. Come be provided for. Come be a child of God and not a child of the devil because there's only one, one or the other. Sheep or goat, you come. You see, he was rejected and forsaken by the Father so that you can be accepted with a certain promise of paradise. You uh, did not have to take the wrath of God. That was taken for by Jesus, therefore pardoning us. See, Jesus was thirsty under the heat of hell, which was being poured out on him on the cross so that we may never thirst again. He was condemned so that we can be set free. So... What do we do? And I know I'm long today and I don't care. What do we do? For believers, wrestle with the Bible about what's true, even when you don't like it. I would just ask you to ask yourself, how seriously do I take God's word, especially when it causes me discomfort and especially when I disagree with how it should be? Wrestle with the scriptures. Second, on the topic of hell, embrace its reality. And third, as believers, take that reality as seriously as God did. And if he sent his son into the world who will reject him, despise him, so that he could be the good news, be the peace of God on our behalf, to bring enemies into a reconciled family, what should be your response, believer? To wonder if it's going to get awkward? with your neighbor to wonder if they're going to want to come over for dinner next Friday? Or will it be to rearrange your life? It might cost you your job. Good. Maybe it won't cost them their life. And that's okay. Can we exchange those? There's going to be pain. There's going to be difficulty. Would we, who, who have the good news, then share the good news? We would be like Jesus, that we would just be poured out like Paul as a drink offering upon the altar of God so that others might be able to see his goodness, see his presence in their life. And for non-believers, 
God took hell so seriously that he now warns us and invites us into something different. He invites you into that which is not fair. He invites you into heaven. It's not fair here. He invites you into the kingdom. He doesn't pay you back. He paid his son. And he gave his son what you deserved, what you racked up on your ledger of life. Oh, praise be to God. Praise be to God that he would do such a gracious and merciful thing so that we might believe and be set free from the power of sin and death and the devil. These aren't just words. This is reality. What a rough reality it can be, but what a beautiful reality it is. When we live in the kingdom and we see that we didn't deserve to be here, we see that this isn't just some cultural fun thing to do on a Sunday morning where we entertain our kids and we might get encouraged about what we could do with our marriage this week. That's part of it. That's good. This is heaven or hell, y'all. May we take it as seriously as God did in sending his son to die for sinners and to bring us into the kingdom. We can cry like that at his, in his arms. We can coo like that underneath the comfort of a father who cares for us and brings us near. Amen. That's all of us in his hands, if we believe. Let's pray. Oh, I don't know how you did this, Jesus. I don't know how you talked about hell so often. But you did. I'm grateful that you did and you brought us in. Lord, help us be reminded of these truths and these realities that not only is there a great danger of hell, but there is great reward of security, freedom, promise, acceptance, forgiveness, redemption, beauty, joy. More than we could ever imagine. So help us, Lord. Help us with this reality. It's not comfortable. But Holy Spirit, counsel, convict, and comfort as we move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.